When you slept last night, did you dream? Uh, what did you dream about last night? Was it a nightmare? And did you feel a sense of relief upon waking up because it was only a dream? Or was it a sweet and wonderful good dream? You know the kind of dreams where you finally have the life that you always wanted? The kind of dream where you finally become the person that you always wanted to be? And when you woke up in the morning, did you feel a, a, a sense of disappointment? Seeing that it was just a dream. And you know, when you wake up from a good dream, it actually hurts a little, doesn't it? Because it tantalizes you with thousands of what-ifs. And you want to somehow go back to your sleep and continue that wonderful dream. But it seldom works. Well, Isaiah 29 is actually about dreams. It's about dreams dashed. And it is about dreams fulfilled. And the first thing we see is how God dashes dreams. God dashes dreams. Now, um, much of what Isaiah writes in this book in, terms, in, in, in the form of prophecy is actually explained in different parts of the book as a narrative, as a historical recording, uh, recording. And the prophecies that we read in chapter 29 has as its background and fulfillment the events that we read about in chapter 37. And in Isaiah chapter 37 is where we find that the Assyrians at last have come against Jerusalem and they have besieged the city of Jerusalem. And it raises an important theological and practical question. Practically, they were asking, what are we going to do to survive the Assyrians? Because they were there for long haul. They've set up their siege towers. They've raised up their ramps. And the, the, the tactic of besieging a city is to wait out until they run out of their food and water. And the theological question that it raised is, doesn't God care? Jerusalem is the city that houses the temple of the Lord. Doesn't God care what happens to his temple? Doesn't God care what happens to his people? Why isn't the Lord doing anything? Isn't he power, is he powerless to defend his people from those that serve false gods? And we read here in chapter 29 that actually it's not that the Lord is powerless. It's not that the Lord doesn't care. But that Jerusalem's peril was actually the Lord's doing. The Assyrians came against Jerusalem because the Lord sent them. So chapter 29 verse 1. Ah, oh, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. The word Ariel has two senses. Uh, it has two meanings. On the one hand, it means the lion of God. It means a hero, a great hero, a lion of God. And if you think about it, it is actually a very fitting name for the city of David because David was a, was a great hero and a warrior. And so the city of Jerusalem at one point was synonymous with power, with success with great deeds of a hero. 
So that's what Ariel means on the one hand, the lion of God, but it also has a second meaning. It's the, the altar hearth. It's where God commanded the fire of his altar to burn without ever being put out. It's where the fire burns perpetually, and it's a graphic symbol of God's holy wrath that burns against sin always. But there is a, there is a, a glimmer and a hint of hope, too, because the fire at the altar, yes, it symbolized on the one hand God's wrath against sin, but the fire burned at the altar to bring atonement and forgiveness. So the everlasting fire of the altar had that dual symbolism, God's perpetual wrath against sin, but his provision, unfailing provision for forgiveness and for atonement. But here in this chapter, that when God calls Jerusalem Ariel, it is used somewhat ironically because Ariel is no longer, Jerusalem is no longer the lion of God. David is no longer the king. The kings of Jerusalem have all been, by and large, sinful, wicked, faithless men. So the city that once was the lion of God is at this point more like a whimpering kitten. And it is the place where God's holy wrath burns. And that is why in verse 2, we read, I, the Lord, I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, the perpetual fire that burns. And that is why the Assyrians have come, and that is why they have besieged the city of Jerusalem, and that is why Jerusalem's defeat was all but a foregone conclusion. But, it's actually one of the greatest words in the Bible. But, but. Did you notice verse 5? But, the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like dust. Because when we read Isaiah chapter 37, what happens is that God strikes down 185,000 Assyrians overnight. And overnight, in an instant, instant, Jerusalem is delivered. And that's what we read about in verses 5 through 6 in this chapter. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts. And so when God delivers Ariel, he dashes Assyria's dreams and he compares them like a man who in his dream was eating but wakes up and realizes it was only a dream and he is still hungry. And Assyria is like the man who in his dream was drinking but wakes up still thirsty because he realizes it was only a dream. And so Assyria had a dream. And Assyria's dream was worldwide dominion. And her dream was of conquest and subjugation of people that God had claimed for himself. And Assyria's dream was of humiliating the name of the Lord and exalting their false gods and idols. But the Lord dashes 
Assyria's dreams because dominion, victory, and power belong to the Lord God. And he, he has a zeal for his name, and he will not let the shame of his people be the fodder of his dishonor. And so for his name's sake, for his name's sake, he will bring his people victory. And that is why he acts in chapter 37 overnight, striking 185,000 Assyrian troops and brings unexpected, miraculous, wonder of wonders, victory for Jerusalem. And this is is tremendously heart-sharing, isn't it? Because today, you and I live in a world where the world seems hell-bent to wipe out the name of the Lord and His Word and even His people from the face of the earth. And so often we feel so weak, so cornered, so lacking in resources and ability to defend ourselves. But remember this, loved ones, that while the world dreams of dominion and subjugating God's people, God will dash the worldly dreams because to God, to God belong kingdom, power, and glory. So God dashes dreams, but he also fulfills dreams. And that's the second thing that we see. Now, can you put yourself, if you can, in the shoes of a deaf man or in the shoes of a blind person? What does a deaf person long for more than anything? The deaf longs to hear. And what does a blind person long for more than anything? The blind dreams of seeing. And in verse 18, we read that God is going to do exactly that. In verse 18, we read, In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. But who, who are the deaf and who are the blind? Well, The deaf and the blind in this chapter are those who cannot see or hear God's word. So look at verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your head, the seers. The Lord has poured out a a judgment upon his people. So they've fallen into a spiritual stupor. They are no longer able to see, and they are no longer able to understand. And what we read in the next verse is that this is both their own choosing and God's judgment upon their choice. So look at verse 11. The vision of all this, vision of all what? All that Isaiah has been proclaiming so far, 
to trust in the Lord. Do not go down to Egypt or trust in Egypt. Repent. Turn to the Lord. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So this is the picture. God has sent his word uh, in the the mouth and in the hands of Isaiah. And he hands his word to his people, and he says, read this. Well, I can't. The book is closed. Well, have you tried opening it? No, it's closed. I can't. And then the Lord says to the one who cannot read, uh, read this. And he says, I can't read. And so this is the picture. God sends his word to his people, and they treat the word of God like a closed book that they are not willing to open. And you know the saying, I think kids say this, one stop can't stop. I won't read it. And God's answer to it is, if you won't read it, then you can't read it. If you are not willing to understand, then you will be unable to understand. If you are unwilling to see, then you will become blind. If you will not hear, then you will become deaf. That is the the point here. And they are the deaf and the blind to whom God says, but in that day, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. But before that, realize to whom God is speaking. Now, if I were to put this in, in, in our modern language, God is not speaking to self-proclaimed atheists, but God is speaking to professing believers. Look at verse 13. Because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You see, these are not the people who say, you know, we don't know the Lord. These are not the people who say, we don't believe in any gods. But these are the people who, who had a very vital religious life. These are the people who, with their lips, praised God. These are the people who, with their practice, worshipped God. And if we saw how seriously they took their religion, you and I would have been very impressed. But not God. God wasn't impressed because he says, these people, these people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. You see, their religion was a man-centered religion. All that they did in their religion was meant to impress other people. And all that they did was meant to congratulate themselves on how well they live up to the rules that they had cherry-picked. You know, that's religion in a nutshell. In all religions, we cherry-pick the rules that we like to keep. We cherry-pick the rules that we know we can keep. And then we use it as a means of congratulating ourselves, and we use it as a means of boasting before other people. 
And that's what God means when He says, These people honor me with their lips and draw near with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Because the Lord says, Their fear of me, their worship of me, their devotion of, uh, to me is a commandment taught by men. You see, they've cherry-picked what they like out of following the Lord. The kinds of things that will make them look good. The kind of things that, that will make them feel good about themselves. That's what he means by commandment taught by men. And there was no heart-searching engagement with God's word in order to live in the presence of the Lord. And that's what made them deaf and blind, both of their own choosing and also God's judgment upon them. They said, we won't hear. And God said to them, you can't hear. We will not read. And God said to them, you cannot read. But, but, God will make the deaf hear and the blind see. So verse 14, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Wonder here has a sense of miraculous, something that only God can do. And it will be just as miraculous as God defeating the Assyrians overnight. And it will be as much a work of grace as giving victory to a nation that was certainly defeated. But when? When is God going to do this? When is God going to make the deaf hear and the blind see? Verse 18, in that day. Now, we've been seeing this phrase over and over in Isaiah, haven't we? In that day. And that's Isaiah's and that's Old Testament language of pointing which was from their perspective a far distant future day when God was sent his Messiah and bring upon earth his powerful kingdom. So what Isaiah is pointing to is the day of Christ. When Jesus, God's Messiah, and when God's king comes, then, then the deaf will hear, the blind will see. And when Jesus came on earth, and when he healed those who were physically deaf and blind, it was not merely that their hearing may be restored, and it was not merely that their sight may be restored, but it was to give a testimony of himself that he's the one that Isaiah promised, who will come and turn the hearts of wayward and lost people who refused to see and as a result could not see, who refused to hear and as a result could not hear, that he was the one who was going to change hardened hearts and change sinful and wayward people to be men and women who love God with sincerity and follow him with pure faith. And that is why many key passages of Isaiah chapter 29 are quoted in the New Testament and apply to Jesus. Of course, we all know about how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. But you know, of course, in 1 Corinthians 1, for it is written, Paul quotes this chapter, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart 
And Paul continues, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus, Jesus is God's wisdom and Jesus is God's power to give life to the spiritually dead. Jesus is the one who opens the deaf ears that they can hear the word of God. Believe it, understand it, and benefit from it. Jesus is the one who opens the spiritually blind so that they may see God and know him. And only Jesus can do that. Because if religion is cherry-picking the rules that please us, the rules that we can keep, and we think that's wisdom, we think that is insight. But when Jesus came, he nullified and disproved the wisdom of men. Because when Jesus came, what he did was not cherry-pick the law that he liked, that he was willing to keep, but Jesus kept all of God's law. He submitted to it completely so that through his obedience, you and I might have a way back to God and find grace. Jesus is the one who fulfills the deepest longing our deepest need. And so thirdly and finally, can I end by saying that life is a dream that will end. Life is a dream if you think about it. Uh, Sometimes life feels like a nightmare. Uh, We are haunted by regret and shame we suffer both the consequences of our own sin and the consequence of other people's sins. And life feels like a nightmare, and we want to wake up from this nightmare desperately. We want to wake up from this nightmare and say, it was only a dream. But sometimes... And thanks be to God, often life is sweet, like a pleasant dream that we have at night. Yes, we are not perfect. Yes, we have so much uh, more to learn and so much more growing left to do. And even so, life is good. We experience so much blessing from God. Yes, we're selfish, but we, in fact, actually do love. (laughs) And we are also loved, genuinely. And there's much good in life and in the world. And we, we feel the sweetness of life, and we long for more. And thanks be to God. The dream that this life is will be over one day. Whether this life has been difficult or sweet, and all for the better. Verse 17, Isaiah says, the Lord says, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? 
Is it not yet a very little while? You know, that's according to how God counts time. For whom a thousand years is like a day, and a day like a thousand years. But he says it's a little while. But after a very little while, God will make the barren place a beautiful garden. He is going to turn Lebanon, dry, arid, barren place, and he is going to make that into an oasis of life and comfort. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. What was on this earth a small oasis of comfort is going to explode in the potency and the vibrancy of life and become a powerful and great forest. You see what Isaiah is speaking is the renewal that is going to come in that day, in a very little while, when Christ comes at last with power when he is going to heal all things, restore all things, and renew all things, then if life has been like a nightmare, that nightmare will then end. And if life has been good and pleasant, it is going to explode in goodness and joy that you cannot possibly imagine. And the Lord says, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The ruthless shall come to nothing. All who watch to, watch to do evil shall be cut off. Those who are astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. In that day, when Christ comes, all that has caused us grief in this world will be over. All that we have longed for in this life will be realized. There will be perfect justice. There will be no more sin. And there will be perfect joy. And that's what we are living for. I know that your life, as is mine, Life is sometimes incredibly hard. And we wish that it would end. Sometimes life is wonderful. It is sweet. And we wish we could have more of it. One day, in that day, when the day of Christ dawns upon us with power, then our dreams will come true. Then the nightmare will be over. Then the sweetest things that we have known will grow and amplify and increase. And the day of Christ will be glorious. Amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled as we consider these things, how you you drew near your sinful and, and, and lost people with grace, with faithfulness. You restored them, you delivered them, and you gave them hope that never fades. And so we draw near you, and we seek your face, and we hold on to that same promise. And we pray that you will soon return in the power and the glory 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Restore and heal all things. May all that has caused us grief and pain in this world be forgotten and pass away. May all the glimpses of glory and joy that we have experienced, which we long for, increase and become perfect. And we await that day and we pray, be with us and help us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.